So we're going to start in Matthew 24, which really fits well with what we're covering tonight. Um, Obviously, because of how much we need to cover, I'll have to move fairly quickly. And about all we can do in the time that we have tonight in Revelation 2 and 3 is just hit the high points. For those of you who are interested, if you like to do your own study, I would highly recommend Amir Sarfati's book, Revealing Revelation. Very good book. Some of you will know him from his, uh, he kind of gives daily news updates of what's going on around the world, but uh, I actually ran into this book with a gentleman we were staying with up in Idaho and uh, started reading through his book and decided I needed to order it. Um, Like any book on Revelation and like our classes on Revelation, we can't possibly cover everything that's in the text. If we did, we would be in the book couple of years it, it, would, it would very easily take us a couple of years to cover the book uh, we're going to hit the high points but uh, you'll find this book very helpful I believe and he's very accurate sorry can you pass it around sure there you go hand it around um, and he's he's right on regarding the question that DJ asked me last week which relates to the question Holly asked earlier, which takes us to Matthew 24, which links to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So we've got a full night ahead of us. So let's uh, ask God's blessing on our time together, and uh, we'll get into the passage. Heavenly Father, once again, how thankful we are for the privilege and the opportunity of gathering ourselves together here this evening. Father, I'm thankful for each and every one that made a priority out of being here, making your word the guiding light of our life is what the Christian life is all about. Having fellowship with one another is the way that we not only experience your presence, but it's also the way that we have the opportunity to minister to one another, to be an encouragement to one another. So Father, I just ask that God the Holy Spirit would take control this evening We know that our Lord is present in our midst as He has promised. Pray that everything said and done will honor and glorify Him. And we ask that you will make your word clear in our minds in order that we may not only have an accurate understanding, but that we might know how it needs to apply to our lives. For this and all the other things that we need, we thank you and ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the question that DJ asked last week after class was, what does dispensation mean? So the word dispensation is actually used by Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. I think it's maybe Ephesians 3, 8, somewhere in there. The word dispensation in that passage, he talks about the dispensation of the grace of God. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word, well, I may as well write it in English, so that you can at least, I get used to writing these things in Hebrew, so 
or in great. Is there any way to? I don't want to. I don't know if I can get behind, get around. Does oh. that does that help? Can you great, folks still just see? Mess it up for everybody else. Can you see? Can you see it now? Yeah. Yes, I can. Okay. It's perfect. So this is pronounced, and you'll relate it immediately to something. Economia. Economy. Economy. There you go. So, economy, when we talk about economy, we're usually talking about money, finance. This comes from two words. By the way, you'll hear different pronunciations of Greek from different people because there are two main pronunciations and then there are all kinds of perverted forms. It's my conviction that modern Greek is the way that biblical Greek should be pronounced. The Bible school pronunciation, I think, is a false pronunciation that was developed by people who didn't know Greek. So they would call this oikonomia. That would be the Bible school pronunciation, oikonomia. Modern Greek, economia, which sounds better. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like if I say my wife, if I say it in modern Greek, it sounds romantic. Yenemu. If I say it in Bible school Greek, it's gunimu. <laughs> doesn't sound very good, does it? So, eco comes from ekos, which means house. Nomia comes from namas, which means law. So the idea is the law of the household. Every household has the ways that the household operates. What you would call the household law, the law of the house, whatever you want to call it. Uh, when we get into Hebrews chapter 3, you'll remember that the author of Hebrews tells us that Moses was faithful in his house as a servant, but Jesus is the son over his house. What's the difference in the two houses? Well, that introduces us to the doctrine of dispensations. So if we make a line representing time, here's eternity past, here's eternity future, put the cross right in the middle, we call this Old Testament, we call this New Testament, we're already talking about two different households. Okay? Moses was faithful in his house, Jesus is the son over his house. Two different households, two different economies. The economy of the Old Testament household, the law of Moses. The economy of the New Testament household, the new covenant. People get very confused if they don't make this distinction because you have Christians trying to live according to the law, trying to apply law where law doesn't apply, and it just gets all confusing. Or a very common thing for commentators is they talk about the church in the Old Testament. There was no church in the Old Testament. There was the nation of Israel. The church didn't begin until the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and it ends with the departure of the Holy Spirit at the rapture of the church. That's why Paul in Ephesians 3 calls this the dispensation of... I'm going to have to get a different marker here. 
The dispensation of the grace. That's not much better, is it? <laughs> okay. Let me try this one. I'm going to go shopping for markers. There you go. The dispensation of the grace of God. Okay? Yes. That's the simplest definition. I can go into more detail, but let's look at Matthew 24. I won't have time, Holly, to go into Matthew 25. Matthew 24 is really the key text that we want to look at. And I want you as we go through this, and we'll probably really only cover about the first half of the chapter because that lays out what we need to understand. <clears throat> Remember that Matthew 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. It's one of the three major discourses of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount being the first, the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 being the second, Olivet Discourse being the third and the last. When Jesus went out and departed from the temple, His disciples came to show Him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this had to shock them. They had to be stunned. And as He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, notice their questions, there are three, when will these things be? In other words, when is the temple going to be thrown down? What will be the sign of your coming? That's talking about His second coming. And of the end of the age. Quick question. What age were the disciples and Jesus living in? We would call it the age of Israel. Began with Abraham in Genesis 11. Question. Well, why says world? How did that come to be in King James? Uh, it's it's not world. It's age. It's Ion. Okay. The age, the end of the age. Some translations do put end of the world, but yeah. that's that's not in view. Okay. So Jesus begins to answer in verse four. What I want us to see is. Verse 4 to 8 is a unit. Verse 4 to 8 is a unit. And Jesus says, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end, end of what? End of the age, is not yet. We have to keep things in context. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows is literally birth pangs. A birth is about to take place. Birth pangs we know increase in intensity and rapidity. So in other words, these things that are the beginning of birth pangs, nations rising against nation, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquake, are going to increase and intensify. Anybody notice what's going on? We have over 40 active volcanoes in the world right now. The biggest one in the world just blew a week or two ago. That's in Hawaii. 
There's one off the coast of Africa that if it blows and if a third of the mountain slides into the ocean the way the scientists are telling us it probably will, it's going to send a tidal wave, a tsunami, across the Atlantic at 500 miles an hour that's going to hit our east coast 300 feet high. Wow. It's going to make the tsunami that hit uh, Pakistan and those other places look like nothing. That's all coming because Revelation talks about it. So what we have here is the beginning of birth pangs. I would submit to you, again we don't have time to go into a whole lot of detail, we're there. This is our time. And the reason I say it's our time is because of what comes next. It's very important that we pay attention to small words, and there's a small word in Matthew 24 that people just skip right over, and it's very important. Notice in verse 9, we enter into a second phase with the word then. And you're going to notice how many times the word then comes up. The word then is a time word. It's designed to show us a sequence of events. It's very similar to the phrase that we find in Re Revelation 1.19, after these things. And you're going to see as we go through the book of Revelation, John keeps saying, after these things, after these things, after these things. Why? Because he doesn't want us to get it all jumbled up in our mind. He wants us to understand that he is laying out a sequence of events. A sequence of events is now beginning and then introduces to us, notice, then they will deliver you to tribulation. Verse 9 is the beginning of the tribulation period. Please bear in mind, there are certain things Jesus is not making clear because... He's not dealing with the church because the church doesn't exist yet. Okay? He's not going to jump ahead. He's dealing with Jewish believers. He's talking about events affecting Israel. When he says they will deliver you, obviously the people he was talking to did not live to see this, and therefore we have to take the you plural as referring to believing Jews in the tribulation period. Make sense? Question. I should have been more precise. I was specifically thinking of verses 40 and 41. Okay, I'll get to that. But this, this is, I think, valuable. Notice that what Jesus is doing in Matthew 24 is giving us an outline of history. Very clear. So he goes through the things that are going to happen, and I'll skip over some of this all the way down to verse 14. He talks about the fact that there are going to be prophets. Notice the word then in verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because of lawlessness abounding, the love of many will grow cold. He that endures to the end will be saved. That's often a misused passage that means if you hold out in your Christian life to the end, you'll be saved. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you're a believing Jew in the tribulation and you make it to the end and the second coming of Christ, you're going to be delivered to go into the kingdom. Okay, Your eternal salvation is based on the finished work of Christ, not how well you perform. 
Okay? Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Verse 16, then. So verse 9 to 14, we're in the early part of the tribulation. Verse 15 and following, we are going to be in the great tribulation. What is the abomination of desolation? Daniel talks about it in Daniel 11, Daniel 12. Desecrating the... Sorry? Desecrating the... Who does it? The Antichrist. 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 Yeah. Antichrist walks into the temple and proclaims himself to be God. When does that happen? Midpoint of the tribulation. Tribulation lasts for seven years. First three and a half years, there's... Turbulence and chaos, but a pseudo-peace exists, and then in the midpoint, all chaos breaks loose. Then they will deliver you to... Uh, oh, it says in verse 16, let those who are in Judea, notice its relation to the land, flee to the mountains, let him that's on a housetop not go down and take anything out of the house, let him who's in the field... In other words, you better flee right then. For then, verse 21, there will be what? Great tribulation. Make sense? Midpoint of the tribulation period, the great tribulation begins. Okay? Where is that on your thing up there? Say what? The tribulation, where is that on That's your... going to be after the rapture of the church. Okay which we'll get to with Holly's question. Okay, then he says, he talks about, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, if God didn't shorten the last half of this period of time, the whole human race would be wiped out. Then he says, uh, verse 23, if anyone says, look, here's Christ or there, do not be deceived. False Christ and false prophets will arise with great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. I have warned you beforehand. Um, and then you come down and verse 29, he answers their, last, their, their question about the end of the age. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So let's make a new little chart here. Here's the seven years of tribulation period. Here's the midpoint. This part's called tribulation. This part is called great tribulation. Antichrist stands in the temple here. Intense persecution against the Jewish people begin. Christ is going to return and deliver the nation. Okay? And it says he'll gather his elect from the four corners of the world and so on and so forth. This is Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 19. Tribulation period in the book of Revelation covers Revelation 6 to Revelation 19. We're about to look at Revelation 2 and 3, <coughs> which deals with the church age, and then in chapter 4 and 5, you remember we have the church in heaven. It's very, very, really the book of Revelation is very simple if we just read it the way it's written. The problem is that too many people go into it and they see all the signs and symbols and, and instead of 
looking to see what those signs and symbols represent in scripture. They just come up with their own idea and you get all confused and nobody knows who's going to be there, who's not going to be there, and it's chaos. Question. Well, I've heard a couple of people say, yeah, the first three and a half years won't be so bad. It'll be bad. It's going to be, yeah. It's, it, it, it'll be, compared to the last three and a half years, it's great. Well, but, I think in the, in the first three and a half, it's like a quarter of the population is wiped out. And a third, the yeah. Second, they say uh, another... Uh, well, you have, you have three times in the Revelation, a third of the population is killed, another third of the population is killed, a fourth of the population is killed. There's not going to be a whole lot of people on the earth at the end of it. Yeah. So uh, there's no good times. No, there's no good times. Okay. I mean, it's going to be bad all the way through. All right. Is that reasonably clear? So what Jesus has done is given us an outline. Birth pangs, tribulation, great tribulation. The part that Holly asked about, and I think you mentioned this last week, and uh, I, I didn't bring it up. Um, so we're looking now at verse, what was it, Holly? 40 and 41. 40 and 41. I thought you were asking about the two in the field. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> 40 40. Oh, we're in 24. Sorry, I jumped ahead. All right. Okay. Read with me from verse 36. Of that day and hour, what day is he talking about? The one from verse 30. The day of Christ's second coming. Okay. Of that day and hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, follow closely. Verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Put yourself back in the days of Noah. Remember what happened. Verse 38, for in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What happened then? Flood, right? They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Who got taken away? unbelievers it's amazing that people can read that and understand it and the very next verse they'll turn it upside down the unbelievers were all taken away so also will be the coming or we could say the day of the coming of the son of man then when on the day of the second advent two men will be working in the field one will be taken the others left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One's taken, the other left. There are people that try to apply this to the rapture of the church. Nothing about the church is in Matthew 24 and 25. What does it mean to be taken as it was in the days of Noah? You're dead. You're removed. Right? 
When Jesus Christ returns to the earth, Revelation 19 will go into detail on this, He is going to speak the word from His mouth. Now, think about this. The sword of His mouth. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. When the Word of God comes to us as a sword, if it pierces our heart and we humble ourselves, we respond to it and we're saved. But there are people who resist that sword. They refuse to let it pierce. They refuse to humble themselves. And therefore, what is it that's going to condemn them in that day? The very Word that could have saved them. He's going to speak the Word and all unbelievers on the face of the planet are going to be annihilated in a moment of time. They're going to be gone. In other words, they're going to be taken away. Doesn't sound very pretty, does it? Do you ever wish that the evil in this world would end? When you hear about child trafficking, when you hear about the abuse some of these children go through, you hear about the wars that are going on, the sufferings of people all over the world, the famines that take place, the hunger of people, and we say, I wish it would all end. It's going to. Why doesn't God do it now? Peter tells us. God is not slack concerning His promise. He is long-suffering toward you, not willing that any should perish. And so He delays and delays and delays His justice and His judgment for the sake of people who are willing to humble themselves and come to Christ. But there are people in this world that will not humble themselves. And they will ultimately, whether they're living now, whether they're living at that time, they will ultimately be not only destroyed physically in death, but ultimately destroyed throughout all eternity. Pride and hardness of heart. Yes, John. Is this alluding to the moment at Armageddon? Or yes. Okay. It's, it's referring exactly to when Christ returns. Again, look at Revelation 19. When He speaks the word of His mouth, they are taken away. Does it make sense? Is it clear? Why does He have to tell us um, the man is in the field and the woman is grinding the flower? I'm sorry? Why does he have to tell us the woman's grinding the flour and the man is in the field? It's just a p common picture. Okay. Usually the men would work the fields, the women would grind the flour. Okay. Just, just a common picture from their culture. Okay? Gene, before you um, erase that board, can we take a picture of it? Sure. Phone? Yeah, sure. We're not seeing it over here. Let me just yeah. add one thing. It's in, it's in the basics book, too. What? It's in the basics book. Oh, it is? Okay. The basics book. You don't have that, Kathy. No. I think I may have one. Of Never mind if it's in that book. Yeah, it's in the basics book if you have the basics book. Yes, question. Um, do you differentiate well, it is distinct, although Israel will be restored and much of their ritual and everything will be uh, brought back, but it will be in the sense of a memorial. See, in the Old Testament, it was looking forward to what Christ has done. In the kingdom, it'll be a memorial looking back to His finished work. But, yes, in, in, at the time or in the millennial reign, but what about when He came and He was preaching and teaching for those... 
33 years that he was... He was living in the Jewish dispensation. It was the Jewish dispensation, yeah. yes. But not a kingdom dispensation. No. No, the prayer he taught us to pray is, Thy kingdom come, and it will come. Okay? Clear as mud? All clear? All right. It's, it's a lot to take in. Um, you know, we all... I mean, when I first started being taught all this stuff, I thought I'm never going to get all this in my head. But believe it or not, repetition keeps reinforcing, makes it easier and easier. All right, so let's quickly go to Revelation 3. Actually, I'm sorry, Revelation 2. We'll look at 2 and 3. And we'll just do a... This is going to have to be a real fast overview. Uh, you have a lot of the information in your notes. Oh, by the way, something you could pray for. I'd appreciate this very much. <clears throat> Sunday, I'm teaching in my old church. Westside Bible Church in Glendale, Arizona. They're without a pastor. They asked me to come down. <clears throat> That's where I learned the majority of what I'm sharing with you from a phenomenal pastor and teacher. But my topic is going to be the first and the last Christmas. So if you're interested, I'm going to answer questions like, number one, is, Christa, is Christmas a pagan holiday that Christians adopted? The answer is no, but you'll hear why. Is the Christmas tree a pagan symbol? The answer is no. You'll hear why if you if you get the uh, classes. The classes will be up in time on our website. Then we'll come down to the question of why the shepherds? Believe it or not, there's a string that runs all the way through the Old Testament that tells us why it was them the announcement was made to. So I'm going to have to be really on my toes because I've got to run from Genesis to Luke chapter 2 to show why it was important. And one of the arguments that critics use to say that it couldn't have been around December 25th is because shepherds did not keep their sheep in the fields in the winter, baloney. When it says there were shepherds living in the fields, that helps identify who those shepherds were. The word living in the fields is actually a word that means to turn the field into a courtyard it's only used one time in the entire New Testament. And it identifies for us who those shepherds were. And the present active participle tells us that they habitually lived in the field. They never lived anywhere else. What shepherds might those be? They were raising the... I'm, they were the ones raising the lambs for the temple, but there's a lot more involved. They're identified all the way through the Old Testament. So anyway, pray for that. And that's this Sunday? Yes, Sunday. Uh, it'll probably be up on our website within a week or so. So uh, if you go to the website, you'll be able to pick it up. What's the website? I'm Basic sorry? Basictraining.org. What? Basictraining.org. Oh, okay. We read it down here. All right. So we're ready for Revelation 3, seven churches. The seven churches of Asia were well known to John when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. That was the first part of the question the disciples asked Jesus. 
when will these things be? When are the stones going to be thrown down from another? It was in 70 AD. And where was I going with that? I was writing hers. <laughs> I, I had a point that I was about to make. Seven churches. Seven churches, thank you. <laughs> Ephesus. John left Jerusalem in obedience to Jesus' commands. This is how important it is to obey Scripture. Jesus said to His disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee from the midst of it. Now human logic would say, well, if it's surrounded by armies, you can't flee. What people don't know, and it's a matter of historical record, is that Titus the Roman gave the Jews in Jerusalem three days to get out of the city. John and the mother of Jesus, Mary, and other disciples remembered what he said, and they left. The ones who stayed died of famine, warfare, or cannibalism. It was, it was horrible beyond belief what happened. To be in the right place at the right time is extremely important in the plan of God. And this is the only thing that can tell us. That's why it's so important. And you and I are living in those days of famine, plague, pestilence, earthquake, warfare. Is it hard to see where we are in history? Can we see that the birth pangs are increasing? I think we can. They're getting more intense. They're getting closer and closer together. It's gloomy, it's dark, it's difficult, but it should also cause us to do what Jesus told us to do. Then look up, for your redemption is drawing near. I'll tell you the great tragedy in our world today is that there are Christians who would rather stay here than go and be with the Lord. As corrupt, as horrible, as evil as our world is, they love this world more than they love Christ and His kingdom. And that's a tragedy. It's just a habit. You fall in love with the world. You fall in love with the world. You love the comforts. You love the things. You love the possessions. I mean, Scripture warns us against it all the way through. So, all right. So, Ephesus. These seven churches were in a circular ministry that went clockwise, heading north from Ephesus, and then going east, southeast, and ultimately circling around. So as we read the names of these, Ephesus, Smyrna, these are churches that John ministered to in a circuit ministry. So he knew them well. So here we go. We're going to have to run. I'm going to read the whole thing and just highlight a couple of points. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus means beloved. The beloved left their first love. That's the beginning of spiritual decline. They left their first love. These things says he who holds the seven stars, that's the seven pastors in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We've already seen the interpretation. It gives it to us in uh, verse 19 and 20 of the first chapter, the lampstands are the churches. Jesus holds the pastors and walks among the churches. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say that they're apostles and they're not, and you have found them to be liars. They couldn't stand false teaching. 
And you have persevered and had patience and labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You would think, what a perfect definition for a church. What a great church to be a part of. But there's a problem. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. It's very easy for us in the Christian life to become church-oriented, program-oriented, activity-oriented, and little by little, Christ is pushed to the side. That was the first love that they had lost. Verse 5, the solution. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent and do the first works. Notice the threefold solution. Remember, repent, and redo. Remember, repent, and redo. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. In other words, your church is going to cease to exist from its place. Historically, we know the church of Ephesus lasted for some time, and so apparently there was repentance. This you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. comes from two words. The Nicolaitans were the first ones who tried to set up a distinction between, you'll be familiar with this, where does laity come from? Laos. In Scripture there is no distinction between the pastor and the people, the shepherd and the flock. We are all members of the body of Christ. But they wanted to set up a hierarchy. And it's going to come in in full force later on. It's going to be accepted. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. There were also other things involved like making money off the ministry and so forth. He who has an ear, here is the challenge to each and every one of us. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to notice the message to the church is a message to all the churches. He, he addresses each church individually, but what he says to them applies to everyone. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There are two senses in which overcome is used in the New Testament. It is used in the sense of faith in Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 who is he that overcomes, but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ? This is that which overcomes the world, even our faith. Revelation 12:11. They overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and did not love their lives even to the death. All of those are talking about our salvation. We have overcome by faith in Christ. But there's also the sense of overcoming in the sense of obedience and I don't have time to go into all the distinctions and how it applies to the passages that we're studying but just understand he is calling these people to repent 
and to recover from what's going wrong in their lives. Okay? Adam was forbidden to eat of the tree once he sinned. Eating of the tree is something that will be restored one day. In verse 8, we see the church of Smyrna. Smyrna comes from the root word for myrrh. Myrrh, of course, was used for what? The embalming of the dead. It was one of the gifts that was brought by the Magi to Jesus. Sweet-smelling gum and incense. These things says the first and the last, Christ the beginning and the end, who was dead and who came to life, I know your works, your tribulations, and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say that they're Jews and they're not. In the previous church we had people saying they're apostles and they're not. Here we have people saying they're Jews and they're not. He says they are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things that you're about to suffer. You know, the average attitude of Christians today is if suffering's coming, Jesus would be saying, don't worry, I'll get you out of it. That's not what he says. You're going to suffer. Don't fear what you're going to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Apparently a 10-day, very intense time of persecution. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Crown of life mentioned in James 1.12 to those who endure trial and temptation. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. It's very interesting that John uh, is living right at the end of the first century. And John had a couple of disciples. Uh, one of them was Polycarp. Uh, I believe it was Polycarp. I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. Um, but I believe it was Polycarp who was the pastor in Smyrna and was burned at the stake. So we have writings that remain with us um, all the way from people that were during these times. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamos. The word Pergamos, switch my notes here. Yes, it was Polycarp. I wrote it down in my notes here. Polycarp lived from 60 AD to 155. He would have overlapped John for at least 30 years. He was his student, pastored in Smyrna, and was later burned at the stake in Rome. So that fits in with what we're being told here. The word Pergamos is a word that means married and exalted. It's in your notes, and I'm, I'm purposely not going into it just because of uh, the time factor here, but each one of these churches not only represents a real church and not only represents conditions that exist in churches somewhere all the time, but they also represent a stage of church history. And your notes will give you, Pergamos, for example, represents uh, the church from 300 to 500 A.D. This is when church became the uh, Roman religion. 
married and exalted. That's the meaning of the word Pergamos. In other words, if you have a state church, you have a corrupt church. You've probably heard of the concept of the separation of church and state. Our founding fathers were so wise. You don't want a state that has an official church, and you don't want a church that is over the state, because it will always lead to the corruption of the church. And that's, of course, what happened here with Pergamos. These sayings, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I'll just point out to you that the word sword here is rumphia, not the normal word machaira. Machaira speaks of the Roman short sword, rumphia speaks of the Thracian broadsword. Six feet long, seven feet long in some cases. So Christ has the rumphia in his mouth. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Apparently, we get the indication that at any given time on the earth, the devil has his throne somewhere. At this point in time, it was in Pergamos. Pergamos was a huge city. It was a prosperous city. It was one of the most corrupt and evil cities in the ancient world. If I actually went into historical records of the kind of things that went on there, it would turn your stomach. And I'll tell you the real tragedy. After spending years and years and years digging and finding out what actually went on back in the worship of Baal, going further back into the worship of Babylon, here looking at what was going on in Pergamos, every bit of it and worse is going on today. I would suggest if Satan has his throne on this earth, it's probably in Washington, D.C. And I mean that with all my heart. Because I could tell you things going on there, you'd probably be running out the door. Verse 14 says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You'll remember Balaam from back in the Old Testament, Numbers 22, 23, the doctrine of Balaam was he was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. God would not allow him to do it. But he said, if I can't curse them, I can corrupt them. So he encouraged Balaam to flood the local Canaanite women, pagan women, into the ranks of the Israelites and brought the nation down by sexual immorality. This is going to come up again. But that was the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam is where it's taught from the pulpit that it's okay. Any inkling of what's going on in a lot of our churches today. He goes on to say, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. This is sexual immorality as worship. This was their worship system. If you want a quick primer of how close we are to them, here's what they did. They had their sex and fertility gods and goddesses. The celebration of those festivals was... They would beat the drums. You would grab whoever was next to you in the crowd, run off into the trees, have sex. Nine months later, what do you have? A whole bunch of unwanted children. Well, guess what? They've got another festival. Now it's the festival to Molech. You take the unwanted children, you throw them in the flames of the fire, and you sacrifice them to Molech. 
Today we do the same thing. We just call it free love and abortion. But we're doing the same thing they did. Verse 15 says, You have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. You notice it was rejected earlier, but now it's accepted. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna to eat. Hidden manna, I believe, refers to deeper understanding and insight. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written that no one knows except him who receives it. So that is Pergamos. That is a very corrupt place. Again, there's a lot more in your notes. I'm just trying to hit high points. Verse 18, to the angel, by the way, the word angel refers to messenger, and I take it to refer to the pastor of the church. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. The word Thyatira means continual offering. It relates to the period of history from 500 to 1500 when we had what? The idea of continual offering. Beginning about that time, the idea was the finished work of Christ is not enough. So you have to add to the work of Christ. He died to save us, but we have to do our part. And so what was brought in were sacraments. And the sacraments are, you have to confess your sins to the priest, you have to be confirmed, you have to be baptized, you have to marry, you have to do all of these things, and all of these are little things that are inching your way into maybe one day getting into heaven. It's a continual offering, is the idea. So, he says of them, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Both, by the way, are symbols of judgment. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. Good things. Isn't it amazing that even when a church is completely out of line, the Lord will find whatever he can to commend them for. He's not a meanie. He's not a bad guy. He's not sitting up there just looking for you to step out of line and squash you. He honors the things that we do right, but he must call out the things that we do wrong. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Can you see how the curse of Balaam in the previous church has now settled in and become a teaching from a woman in the church who says she's a prophetess? And what is she teaching? She's teaching that sexual immorality is a way of worshiping God. Free love. We've heard all that. How gracious God is. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Could have. God wanted her to. Verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. In other words, they are going to go through some Terrible, terrible judgment. I don't take great tribulation here to refer to the great tribulation. It's simply intense suffering. 
Verse 23, I will kill her children with death and all of the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. God deals with us as we relate to him. Some people find that objectionable. Some people want a God who's all love and just overlooks things and sweeps things under the carpet. But never forget, God is not only a God of love, He's also a God of justice. And love and justice must always balance out. He says in verse 24, Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Hold fast what you have until I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. They will be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give you the morning star, apparently a decoration of some kind that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we move to Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis. Sardis means a remnant or those who escape. It relates to the time in history from 1500 to 1700. And what do we have during that time? The Reformation. People escaping from this cult of perpetual and continual sacrifice and offering. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In other words, the spirit of God in all of his seven uh, ministries and the seven stars being the ministers of the churches. I know your works that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. What a terrible message to a church. You guys have a great name. Everybody claims that you're a great, living, thriving church. But he says, you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, the word watch literally means to wake up. If you will not wake up, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So they're going to be rewarded for what they've done, just as he said, I'll deal with each of you according to your works. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just before the question comes up, let me deal with the phrase, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. How could Jesus say that of a believer who has eternal salvation? In other words, if our salvation is eternally secure, how could Jesus say, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life? It's a little bit technical sometimes, but there's a technique called letotes in Scripture. Letotes. It's used quite a bit in Scripture. And what it does is it assures the positive 
by posing a very strong negative. It's just a literary device. What does it mean? It means, for example, if I come home and Nan greets me at the door with a kiss and I come in and dinner's ready and it's my favorite meal and I say something like, I'm sure not going to divorce you. I've just spoken in letotes. In other words, I've used a negative to say, this is never going to happen. Okay? It was common uh, usage back in their day, common usage today as well. I'm sure not going to do this. What does that mean? You can bet that I'm going to do the opposite. So in other words, your security is assured. Okay? Verse 7, the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, the church that lived out what Jesus said in John 13, if you love me, keep my commandments, and this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Historically, Philadelphia represents church history from 1700 to 1900 when we had the great wave of missionary outreach. All of great missionary organizations, the great Wesleys, Taylors, Careys, other Judson, Adoniram Judson, others that went out, China, India, Africa at this time became centers of great evangelistic work. So to the church of Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy and is true, he who has the key of David, we saw that earlier in chapter 1 and verse 18, key of death and hell, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. It's an open door of ministry. You have cross-references in your notes. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, we've seen them earlier, who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. The implication here is that they're going to win many of these people to faith. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. The idea seems to be implied here that a crown is provided for each of us. The moment we trust in Christ, we don't have to earn it, but we can lose it. That seems to be the indication. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out anymore. I used to think this would be a horrible reward because you'd be stuck in the heavenly temple standing there like a pillar. That's not what it means at all. In the ancient world, if you accomplished a great feat or if you were a great warrior that came home from battle, they would raise a pillar in your honor and it would be inscribed with a record of your valiant deeds. So basically what he's saying is, I'm going to inscribe a record of your life in the temple of my God. Gina, real quick, verse 9. Who's he referring to those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not? But lie indeed, I will make them come to worship before your feet. Who is he speaking of? Okay, so the synagogue of Satan we saw earlier, yeah. right? And 
there are really two uh, approaches to this. It's people pretending to be Jews that are not. I'm inclined to take the second view that they're racially Jews, but unbelievers. And so they're coming in and trying to impose Old Testament synagogue uh, standards in the church. We see that happening a lot today. Um, and remember that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, I think about verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. So apparently this was an attempt to infiltrate the church by people who were holding to Old Testament standards, Jewish people, but they were unbelievers. So in that sense, they're not true Jews. All right. Where are we? Um, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. Verse 11. That no one may take your crown. He that overcomes, I will make him a pillar. We dealt with that. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everything that's being said in this is a, an appeal to each one of us. There's not a one of us that is not talked about in these verses. There's not a one of us that doesn't have things that need corrected in our life. And so what he's saying is, please listen. Please hear what I'm saying. It will be to your advantage, your benefit, your blessing, your effectiveness in being a blessing to other people. Please pay attention to what I'm saying. Okay? And here we come to the last church, to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Laodicea, another one of those compound words. We saw this one before. What did that mean? Law. The people. Oh, by the way, in your notes, I noticed this after I ran them. On page 5 under point 7, here we have the final of the seven churches. The name comes from Laos, the people, and your unfortunate misspelling is Kike. It should be DK. So you want to correct that. D-I-K-E. DK means... Justice or rights. Please keep in mind this was written 2,000 years ago. And what it's telling us is that the last phase of the church is going to be a church of, we could put it in modern terms, Or can you read those off for us? Human rights or social justice. How many churches could I point you to right in this area? Yep. This is their banner. 
to the church of Laodicea. Let's see what he has to say to them. These things says the Amen. Amen means it is true. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. So this is the lukewarm church. I would wish that you were either cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. A lot of people try to twist this into they've lost their salvation. Go back to Leviticus 20, verse 22 and following, and the same phrase is used when God says, when you come into the land, if you turn away from me, if you follow false gods, the land which I have given you, a land of milk and honey, which was to be a blessing place for you, will vomit you out of its mouth. So what's he talking about when he talks about vomiting out of the mouth? Loss of inheritance. Loss of blessing. Leviticus what? Leviticus yeah. 20, 22. Thank you. Leviticus 20, 22. Verse 17, here's the boast of the Laodicean church. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. How many churches do we know like this? I mean, every year they're building a new add-on building. Just, there's no end to it. You know, we build and build and build monuments that are going to be in the tribulation monuments to the pride of men. <coughs> I've said for years, and I believe that it's going to become even more true in the days ahead, however many days there are left to us, the church began in homes and it's going to end in homes. And I think as persecution ramps up in this country, and it will, by the way, everything that's being done has a, a point and a purpose. Every, I mean, I could just go through the whole list. Homosexuality, LGBTQ, transgenderism, abortion. Now they're pushing the idea that if you call a person a pedophile, you should be put in jail. There's a guy in Britain that's going to be put in jail for three to five years for identifying a person that's a pedophile because they say you're making a criminal out of them. This is where we are today. We are in a really, really sick society. Calling it a sexual preference. Preference. It's, it's, a, it's an identification, they call it. This is what I identify as type stuff. So we're right in the middle of Laodicea right here. I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a terrible thing for the Lord to say to His people. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, you'll find out that the refined gold is faith. Faith refined through trial. Remember he says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it's tried with fire may be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, he is coming. And make no mistake, our lives are going to be an open book. And he will deal with us. Now please understand, 
because this is where it's easy as a preacher to start yelling about all of your sins are going to be put up on the screen. No, no, no. Your sins have been forgiven. All of them, past, present, and future. They have been wiped from the slate. They are removed as far as the east from the west. But it's still going to be a pretty uncomfortable situation when we give an account of our life. If God were to write the history of your life and He only includes the parts that honor Him, how big would the book be? Or would it be one sentence? You know, there's a guy in the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, named Demas. You know what the record of his life is? Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. That's written in Scripture and it's going to be there throughout all eternity. Someone that would be. Said if, if somebody accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to, to convict, convict you? Yeah. yeah, good point. Hmm. Good point. I counsel you to buy white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The eye salve is, of course, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing here is that Laodicea was a center where they made eye salve for people that were suffering from eye problems. Very interesting. Notice verse 19. I find this astounding. This should comfort every one of us. As many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. Why does he say the things he says to them? Why does he say it to us? Because he loves us. God doesn't call sin, sin, because God doesn't, doesn't want us to have fun. God calls sin, sin, because it is destructive to our soul and it's destructive to the lives of other people. It ultimately only brings misery. His desire is that we live lives that are happy and blessed. So he says, I love you and I'm rebuking you. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You hear this often used as an evangelistic invitation. It's fine as an application, but it's not actually what it's saying. He's talking to people who are already believers. I am standing at the door of your life. I am knocking on that door right now. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that is, opens the door to your heart and soul, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. How far are we away from fellowship with the Lord? Just that quick. How long does it take to open a door? How long does it take to humble ourselves and repent and say, I've been wrong? The life I've been living, the decisions I've been making, they've been wrong. I confess it and acknowledge it. And he says, fine, let's sit down and have a meal. What is the first thing Jesus says to the Christian who's been off track, who says, I humble myself, I accept your rebuke, I repent of what I've been doing. He says, good, let's sit down and have a meal. Just like we just did, right? Because having a meal in the ancient world was the picture of fellowship. Enjoying one another's company. says in verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's a lot more in your notes than what I've been able to touch on. 
There is so much more that I could deal with that isn't even in your notes, but as I said, consider getting the book uh, by Sarfati, a uh, very good book. Again, and it's not that I'm apologizing for him. There's so much that he can't take time to deal with or the book would be six inches thick. You know, we do the best that we can to cover the things that maybe need to be said or, or hopefully are right for the moment. When we get back, which is going to be some time, uh, because we're going to be halfway around the world for about six weeks now, but when we get back, I want to come back to these three passages, and I just want to deal with the phrase, he that overcomes. Because there's some really twisted teaching about that, and I want to make sure that you're armored and prepared and equipped not to fall prey to some of what's being taught. All right, I'm going to pray and we're going to close, and then if you have any questions, I will do my best to try to answer them. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you once again for this wonderful company of people, how you love each and every one of us. You proved it at the cross. You've done everything possible to give us not only eternal life, but abundant life. Father, we resist your love at our own peril. Help us to humble ourselves, make our souls sensitive to your word, as the Spirit speaks to us from these passages and we see things here that reflect maybe errors in our own life, help us to respond to that call, to hear, to repent, to return to faith, to become an overcomer in our practical daily life. Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace. We pray for our nation. Father, we pray for a great awakening in this country. We pray that the gospel would spread across this land, that you would touch hearts and souls and open eyes, that people in positions of power and authority and leadership would be humbled and realize it's not about power, it's not about money, it's not about recognition and acclaim. It's about being humble and serving your people. Have mercy on our nation and deliver our nation because without it, we are headed for a terrible doom. These things, Father, we pray in the mighty name, the victorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask in his name, amen. Any questions over anything that wasn't clear or? Yes. general question that I always wondered about. Um, I am not homosexual or any of those transgender things. But I know some people that are. Mm -hmm. I don't hate them. You shouldn't. No, we're not to hate them. <laughs> no, hating them is the wrong... I mean, why would we hate them? Christ loves them. Christ gave his life for them. But, but, the, but they're the, doing, going against God's word. And yes. that's why I was worried because... I don't hate him. No, you shouldn't. I don't want, I don't want to hate him. You know, the old saying is, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. We do what we can to share Christ with him. And my policy with anyone, if, if I try to share the word and I see them close up, I just drop it. 
because they're not ready yet. If I keep hammering at them and trying to force my view on them, all it's going to do is harden their heart. But what I try to do then is show them the love of Christ in my life, and as I have opportunity, maybe even to just say something like, they're having a hard time, can I pray for you? And little by little, trying to urge them and encourage them to come to Christ. Um, that where you talked about um, Leviticus 20, 22 about the mama, and you said loss of inheritance. Would you define that? Okay, so it's one thing to have eternal life. It's another thing to lay up treasure in heaven. Every act of obedience, every act of service, every act of sacrifice we do will have a corresponding eternal reward. So it's not talking about like Ephesians chapter 1 or 2? No, 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 no. Inheritance is the riches that are waiting for you in your heavenly mansion, if you want to put it that way. Will they be great or will they be few? That's the only question. Wood, wood and stubble, burned up, gold, silver, and precious stones, that's what we lay up in heaven. And by the way, there is, and this is important to point out, there is a blanket inheritance that all believers share that you can't lose. You can't lose. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4, He has given us life let me just read it for you so I get it exactly right. We have been begotten again to a living hope to an inheritance. Verse, um, verse 4. To an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. So there is a blanket inheritance, if you want to call it that. Every believer is going to share that. Nobody is going to be poor in heaven. Nobody is going to feel left out in heaven. But we can add to it. By prayer, service, obedience, things like that. Dispensationally speaking, now, some people say that the church actually began with the Apostle Paul. Yes. How do you feel about that? I have good friends that are in the ministry that hold that position. We just agree to disagree. They, do, they believe that because it was to Paul that the majority of church-age truth was revealed. Mm -hmm. But the Scripture makes it clear that the church began on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, but... One of the things that happened going forward up until the time of Paul was Peter and the apostles of Peter. You talk about the Jewish church and to the nation of Israel. And that the author for their repentance and acceptance of their king, Messiah, was still on the table. It was. And up until that time when people would argue the martyrdom of Peter, really. Um, and then, had they accepted him, there would have been a tribulation and, you know, but 
that the dispensation of grace wouldn't have been necessary, it would have gone right, right. to that. But anyway. That's a, a theoretical position. You can even push that farther back, so you can the moment Christ was resurrected it would be or whatever church is, right? I mean, one of the this this is this is why Paul always said that the gospel was to go to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. I would hold the position that the kingdom could only have come had they accepted him before the crucifixion. He still would have had to die. He would have, yeah, he still would have had to die. But really when you get into all this it's kind of all theoretical because none of it ever happened. Right? So we can't really build our doctrine on what might have happened or could have happened. We have to build it on what happened. So my question would be, which is a bigger thing? The Holy Spirit coming and indwelling people permanently or Paul being made an apostle? Well, the, the body of Christ, the dispensation of grace, those are not small things. No. No, no. No, it's, it's not a small thing. I understand why people hold to the position they do in Acts 13. Like I say, I've got a good, a good pastor friend that holds that. And, you know, we exchange our ideas and so on and so forth. He, he holds to it. That's between him and the Lord, I'm convinced. Well, you know, the, the Apostle Paul says there's one body, one baptism, one spirit. Yes. Um, people that don't hold to that often talk about different baptism, the baptism of John, the baptism on the day of Pentecost. What is Paul talking about? The one baptism and all the confusions and all the different denominations are all really a result of, I think, a lack of understanding. Yeah. That. And yeah. If we understand. Yeah, there are actually seven baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. Yeah. Okay. One for this age. So when Paul's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places all of us, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, into the body of Christ. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Yes. When did that begin? The moment of our salvation. Pentecost. Well, I think on the day of Pentecost, and Peter talks about being baptized, uh, and one is being baptized with the Holy Spirit, and, and the other one's the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. You're correct there. That is true. The baptism with the Holy Spirit happened one time. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down on the believers that were gathered there. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened as well, meaning that they were placed into the body of Christ. Does it make sense? Well, we, we, would, we, we would have to have something in the text that would tell us that there was a later point where the Holy Spirit started baptizing people into Christ? Well, when I think of Paul, he calls my gospel and that he is the apostle to the Gentiles and this is the dispensation of grace okay. and all of the teaching quick, and doctrine quick, that he brings. Quick, quick question. That's true. 
He was the main vehicle. So when he says one baptism, I tend to think that that would be the baptism pertinent to the dispensation of grace, the body of Christ. Absolutely. Church age. Absolutely. Absolutely. The only question is, where did it begin? And that the offer was still on the table for Israel and the nation to accept him. I think after his... Yeah, I think the offer was gone for them when they rejected him and put him on the cross. I guess that's where I kind of... For the, but you're saying it, the, the offer was not there for the nation, but all the individuals. Individually, they could say... I think nation. what he's talking about is, had they accepted Christ as Messiah, his kingdom would have begun. In yes. other words... After, the, after the, the crucifixion. No, no, before... No, after the tribulation. Because the, the, prophecy, uh, the prophecies of the tribulation, there's are theoretical, they're written, and they would happen, and they would have happened even then. Because of, they did crucify the Messiah. They did crucify the Messiah. That's, that's why we can't really talk about if they had accepted Him, because prophecy only deals with what is, not with what could have been. But when the, he's preaching, Peter is, he's talking to the nation of Israel. And he addresses them as such. Your ancestors, Abraham and Bob, right. you know, down in our forefathers. Uh, he's not talking to Gentile believers. Right. So that's a different, you have a Gentile church. Right. For the times of the Gentiles so to be filled. Here would, my, here would be my question. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius, and the people in the house of Cornelius who are Gentiles believed they were baptized by the Holy Spirit, were they in the church or not? That's a good question. Yes, that is a good question. Yeah. You know, and, and, of course, one argument that you could say, well, they were proselytes at that time. No, they weren't. No. Absolutely not. No. But um, you could also, that kingdom that and what that dispensation that will be picked up, we're looking forward to. Well, let's look at it another way. When did the Old Covenant end? Well, that's the question. That's the point we're talking about. And I think... I can tell you exactly when it ended. When Jesus said it's finished and the veil in the temple ripped, the entire Old Testament system was done. Well, he should have told the apostles because even in Acts... Um, after Paul, Peter gets the vision and he says, kill and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I would never do anything against your law. Okay. And they were still... Okay, so here's the question. To, here, here's the question. Testament. Was Peter being obedient or disobedient? Well, disobedient. He became obedient. <laughs> he became obedient. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when the Lord says, do this, and you say, no, Lord, that's not very good obedience. No. Wait, are we making See, a distinction between the dwelling of the Holy yes. Spirit and the church? Is that what I'm hearing? Is that what this is about overall? The overarching view? Yeah, but there, there is no distinction. Ah, okay, because the before coming, the day of Pentecost, there was no dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Was that right. the right. Which began the church? Well, there was the Spirit of God that came upon And that's the difference in the Old Testament to the prophets. Um, the Holy Spirit moves. There was a grace in the Of course. Of course. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God 
and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's great. What, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The question was that the beginning or what could have been the kingdom made had Israel received their Messiah? And the pouring of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit on believing Jews in the Old Testament happened, and that was the Holy Spirit. The one thing to think about. And that happened on the One thing to think about. He says that was the only time that one happened. In Acts 2, how many people were saved? 3,000. What does the scripture say? 3,000 were added to the church. 